squad we're back in here doing our thing and this podcast is actually very interesting because it was just so fun and so long to film you know we had a we have a whole podcast dedicated to one independent strong woman anyways how was your new year's i hope it was great we we all love you so much and yeah we're we're just in here our our first our first podcast this year in 2021 actually yeah. The first 2021 podcast, and it's online, everything, it's nothing. Wait, that's... Natalia, Natalia, new year, new pod squad, am I right? <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so we, um, we've decided that this whole episode is going to be uh, just, we had, a, we had the opportunity before Christmas to interview Emer Noon. And uh, even though she's extremely busy between America and Ireland, um, she's obviously back in Ireland at the minute with lockdown and everything. So just before Christmas, we were able to interview her um, and she kind of, she gave nearly two hours of her time uh, to chat to the podcast team. Um, so for those of you who don't know who Emer Noon is, she is a Irish female conductor and composer. And she sort of shot to fame, really, in 2020 when she was the first woman to conduct the Oscars at the Oscar ceremony. There's for the nominations for Best Original Score. Um, there's always a live orchestra with conductor, and it's always been male conductors who've done that. But this year, or last year rather, she was the first female uh, to conduct the Oscars. Um, she does a lot of arranging. She composes music, uh, she, a lot of video game music. So she's composed music for the likes of uh, World of Warcraft, The Legend of Zelda. Um, and then uh, she has done a lot of arranging. Um, so we were so grateful for her to give up her time to speak to us. And I think you'll all agree with me that it was uh, it was very interesting, wasn't it? She was very inspiring, really. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Good. Um, <laughs> so I think without further ado, will we just get straight into the interview? Yes. Yes, we will. Yay. Yeah. Okay. Enjoy. Um, we are delighted to welcome Emer Noon. So how are you today? Well, really good. And it's great to see your beautiful smiling faces. And I'm, I'm glad to be here. And I'm excited that you guys are curious about what I do for a living. Yeah, um, we just thought we'd start the um, the podcast or the interview off to just some fun questions, basically. Like so really fun. like fast-paced questions, okay? So they'll be simple <laughs> ones like lemon or lime or something like that, okay? Okay. Is that is that do we uh, is that a question? Yes. Lemon. Lime, lime, definitely. Yeah. Um, are you a savory or a sweet person? Oh, both, but not together. Sweet and sour? Mm, confusion. <laughs> that? The dogs or cats? Dogs, 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 dogs. Are you an um, extrovert or an introvert? Both, actually, which is um, composer, introvert, uh, conductor, extrovert. Yeah. Um, and we were just thinking, are you recording, um, are your recording studios um, open still in COVID and stuff? Uh, it depends. I record in lots of countries in the world and uh, it depends from country to country. Um, but I think Los Angeles at this point is shut down. Uh, our windmill here in, in Dublin we have minimal possibilities with really, really small groups and so on, really, really carefully done. Um, it, it really honestly depends on the rules in each city in each country. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, Speak up. So what have you been doing during COVID? <laughs> what have I been doing? Oh, lots of things. Um, I've been scoring a film with my husband. So we're, he's a composer too. And we scored a film called Two by Two Overboard, which strangely enough is coming out in Irish cinemas today. And uh, we wrote an end title song and I wrote the lyric for the song and we recorded the song. And then we directed a video for the song. And one of the interesting things that happened because of COVID is 
the, the big choruses at the end of the song require a require a choir say that 10 times um and uh we couldn't have a choir we didn't have a whole lot of singers in a room together so what we did was we invited uh the film crew everyone that's in the crew to sing as part of the choir and film themselves so that became part of the music video and uh it's one of those things that is different and a little bit special because of the limitations that we experienced during lockdown that wouldn't ex have existed this way otherwise. Um, but yeah, we've been, I've been writing music. I've been, um, yeah, mostly writing music. And uh, I just conducted a really special concert with the National Symphony Orchestra of Ireland um, a few days ago. And we filmed it for everybody to have a look at on St. Stephen's Day. Um, and we did that, it was the first concert that the orchestra could do with 70 musicians because it was the first opportunity we got to be allowed to have that number of people in a massive room together. It was at the RDS and they put the percussion on the stage and all of us were on the floor where the audience goes and we're all socially distant. We, were all, we had masks except for the woodwinds and brass who were you know, surrounded by plexiglass. It's like they had their own little isolation booths like we'd have in the studio. Um, so I've actually been doing quite a lot. We made a, a mini um, audio documentary for the BBC World Service. And um, I'm really bad at remembering what I've just been doing. You know, it's, it's um, I'm the worst person to write my own, own bio. I'll tell you what, I, what my bio will be, what I just did five minutes ago and I've forgotten everything else. But uh, no, we did a, a lot of writing and um, we also set up a production company here in Ireland. So normally my company would be in Los Angeles. So we moved it home to Ireland and hopefully we're going to have some Irish people come on board on our team and, uh, you know, expand our industry here a little bit. So there you go. What is the production company called? It's called 12 O'Clock Arts. Very good, very good question. 12 O'Clock Arts, because guess what my name is, right? Not only is my last name Noon, but I was born at... Oh, that's so yeah. <laughs> I was born at 12 o'clock noon. <laughs> exactly, on the dot. <laughs> so there, that's why it's called that, but... um. Yes, yeah, so so we do lots of different things, um, writing music for film and video games, writing music for concerts, writing music for albums, writing orchestral pieces, writing songs. We make videos as well. We make, um, uh, my husband and I, my husband directs as well. We just made a, we're finishing a documentary. I had a, I had a documentary filmmaker on tour with me for two years. Yeah. And she even filmed my, son being born she filmed his first breath as part of the documentary so that's being finished yeah. and uh that that's going to come out probably early next year um so yeah we we do lots of things and um we kind of think of ourselves as people who just make up things we don't call ourselves at, at home we don't call ourselves composers or conductors or filmmakers we just say we we're people who make things up and it takes away all the pressure and baggage of when you think of composer, you think of a guy in a powdered wig and, you know, a conductor is a guy with big hair and a, and a, a black um, tails and a white bow tie. And, you know, we just sort of blast all of those titles away because they're not helpful and they come with all kinds of assumptions and connotations but we just make stuff up and then we perform the stuff <laughs> so it's really simple that's really good yeah i can't imagine how hard it is like to break those stereotypes and as a woman especially and to just cr kind of create your own image so we've seen your um the bold clothes that you wear on stage and is that all your idea or is it like people are dressing you you know, um, again, you girls are coming up with questions that I don't get asked by journalists, you know. Um, so I'll tell you the secret behind that one is um, two things. One, um, I had, uh, I, was, I was doing these video game music concerts and I was wearing the 
black jacket that everybody wears. And of course, like, I'm never going to wear a tuxedo or look like that conductor stereotype. But I remember seeing all of these people in the audience who are cosplayers. And they came in these incredibly elaborate, amazing outfits that they create from scratch because cosplay is kind of part of the subculture of gaming where you, you daren't show up in something you bought online. You, you show up in something that you've created and it's part of, it's a whole subculture. And I just thought, God, I'm really not serving my audience by showing up in this lazy ass black jacket here, you know? So there was that out of, for me, I, I truly believe my job is in service to the audience. You know, that's my job is to is to pick people up and take them to this fantasy land for a couple of hours and they can leave all their troubles and their worries and all of that stuff behind. But the other one was this was a tour I was on um, for a couple of years. They ended up when I left hiring somebody who looked really like me. And it really confused the fans and stuff like that. So I just went and it, it was really kind of strange. <laughs> so I went, okay, we got to, we got to, we got to, we got to separate out here. And, and then I thought to myself, well, who are you really? And what do you want to say? And, and how about just being yourself? And I thought, well, I want people when they come to a concert to know that this is a different world, that I didn't just roll out of bed and throw on this thing. And, you know, I want to show respect for the audience. I want to show I've really made an effort. And um, then a photographer friend of mine said, you have to meet this Irish designer, Claire Garvey. And I saw Claire's stuff. And I, I said to Claire the first time I met her, I said, okay, if a video game heroine met Mozart on the way to a Metallica concert, what would that look like? And she, she went, jip, 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 like this. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so now in fairness, I'm not going to, the, the, the outfits go with the music. It's not like I'm gonna show up and do Mozart's Requiem um, or, or I mean, when I do the Maria Callas hologram project, I wear black because um, I can't, I can't wear something that makes me visible through the hologram. I can't wear anything shiny. They, the director even wanted me to dye my hair black. I was like, ah, might need a bigger budget for that, mate. <laughs> but <laughs> I need to be compensated psychologically. No, I'm kidding. But, um, but they, it always goes with the music. Um, for instance, I'll give you a spoiler. Uh, the concert that I did with the, the National Symphony Orchestra the other day, uh, Shabelle Nikasa just sang and Jack L sang. And I commissioned Claire. I said, Claire, you know, this is our first time back. This is my first concert back. The Brass and Percussion is their first concert back. It's going to be really emotional for us. We are coming into a new phase. We're going to leave all this stuff behind. I said, to me, the, something that symbolizes that is the Phoenix. Can you create something inspired by the Phoenix? Yeah. for me the bird that rises from the ashes I didn't hurt that we had Hedwig's theme from Harry Potter on the program too <laughs> so that was a bit that was a bit tied into the music but she created this beautiful beautiful piece and then I said okay uh we're doing the song Stand for Hope from 2 by 2 the movie and in the music video which we released today um I had Chabelle wear one of Claire's pieces so we had Chabelle wear that in the concert and then Jack L showed up and wore one of Claire's pieces as well. So all three of us are doing something special and different and it goes with the music. The music is that the, the concert's called Pure Imagination. And it's about story and it's about going into your imagination and being free inside of your imagination and creating these other worlds and these stories. And in film, you you observe the character and you imagine yourself as the main character and how you would feel in that. And in video games, you are the main character. So it's kind of, was all about fantasy. Um, so we went, we went there with the, with the outfits and you know, why not? It's a bit, it's fun. When you do get commissioned, do you get a preview of the game before composing? Like you, 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 you have to know what's in it, right? Um, well, before we sign on, no, we don't. But when we're signed on and everything is contractually in place, uh, yes, we do. And we get, 
um, we get to play it as well. So we'll get to cheat. Like in World of Warcraft, we get to go way up the levels and, and we get to cheat. It's just because we need to, we need to walk around and see what's going on. Um, and different game developers work differently. So, um, you know, the cinematic is the, the film, basically the animated film that sets up the game. The cinematic you'll get, and this is like working on an animated feature as well, you'll get each part of it in, in various stages of completion. And I love animatics. It's when you have just like stick figures drawn with a biro, you know, and I, because a lot of the time with animation and cinematic, they'll record the voices first. So you hear this amazing big voice and you see this little stick figure like walking along and you have to really go into your imagination then and create the big sound for what you know will be this beautifully fleshed out um, work. Uh, so, so yeah, we, we, we get to see it at various stages of development and then they'll come back with some colorized stuff or some, some fleshed out stuff. And, and um, yeah, so it depends. It depends on the process that, that they prefer because one game we worked on, uh, I was given just 2D art, artwork. Um, and, I was told go just write something inspired by this, tell a story with the music. Then we went in, uh, there were seven of us composers working on it. This was World of Warcraft, Warlords of Draenor. And um, we went into the studio and we had exploratory uh, sessions. And this is, you know, rarely happens because you need a really massive budget to, to kind of do it this kind of way. Uh, we went in to do exploratory sessions uh, with a small orchestra we heard all each other's work. Then that was fed to the animators and to the artists and to the producers and directors. So they'd sit there with headphones on working, listening to what we've recorded. And then they send us their work and then we 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 flush out the, the score much, much more. And also we, we would incorporate each other's themes, each other's little instrumentation, bits and pieces or whatever to give it more cohesion. Because in a game like that, there's hours of music. There's a lot of work to be done. Uh, so you need, you need a team. Um, that doesn't say we aren't individuals. We are, right? Our pieces are our own. Um, but uh, yeah, that's the only time we've ever done it that way. Can you, can you just put it in a loop and let it play over and over again? Yeah, yeah, kind of. We put we put all the music into a file to give the animators to just listen to and go demented ad nauseum, you know, while they're working. Um, so that was really cool. This is very collaborative, you know, we're throwing work back and forth with each other, um, which really is very, very rare. And um, most of those games, that you have composed for, I've noticed that they're all adventure games. Not all of them, but most of them are adventure games. Do you think you have a certain style of music that suits those Well, adventure and fantasy, I suppose, um, it goes with the style of the game, really, who you bring on. Maybe, I mean, the orchestra is, is incredibly expressive and incredibly expansive. So if you have these worlds that are, have these huge, like I describe it, I don't know if you know a game called Diablo. Yeah. Diablo, the backgrounds in Diablo look like Salvador Dali to me. I mean, they're incredibly expansive and huge and wide. And, you know, that, that requires the orchestra, big, big string section to get that sort of depth and you get to express what's there so really my mode of expression is orchestra so my style i, I suppose style, style is different to to um yeah. style is different from genre style is different from instrumentation but i suppose really it's the orchestral sound that goes best with fantasy with adventure games um rather than something that has a rock and roll score uh, so since the orchestra is my medium of expression, I suppose it all, you know, all goes together. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you play any of those games, Bill? I do. Um, I, I play them when I'm working on them. I play them now and again. I have two small little boys. Um, so, and I tour as well. So my time is really, really limited. 
I'm, and I also have, I have to be careful about getting addicted to things uh, because so which World of Warcraft is just a disaster for me. I have to be really careful with that one because you could just fall down that rabbit hole and be gone for a long time. Um, so now I have also, it's like what's in the house. We went through a whole Skyrim phase in this house. And now my, my, my little boy is seven and he's big time into his Nintendo Switch and his Nintendo games. So I'm way back in Nintendo land again. Um, they're always pulling me back. <laughs> um, so, so it depends on, on you know, uh, how much time I have really and what's going on. And it's great if somebody else in the house has something out, you know, um, my stepdaughter was really into Skyrim. So I got to play Skyrim with her and, you know, we have, we play the switch a lot now and I, I'm coming back to Nintendo from working on all these role-playing games and stuff. So it's, yeah, it's definitely a gaming house. Out of all of the games that you've composed for, which one would be your favorite? Ooh, yeah. Mm, I will never say. <laughs> I will never say because you know what? Um, I, I love them all for different reasons. Um, I love them for different reasons. That That is the truth. Uh, also, it's it's very. It depends on what role I have. Am I the composer? Am I the orchestrator? Am I the conductor? Am I all of those? Am I two of those? You know. So my experiences with different games are different. Um, I will tell you uh, one great thing. Of when I was working with Blizzard, we would record four or five times at the Skywalker Ranch in Lucas Valley, just across from the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. And that was like creative person heaven, that place. It was just, I would cycle, put my scores, um, put my scores in the front of a bike and you're staying in a ranch house and every single room has, is named after a different um, person from film history. And then one of them is the George Gershwin room and has a piano in there and everything. And you sit and write in your suite. It's just super cool. Then all the food is is like organic and grown on the ranch and the wine is grown on the ranch and you bump into a bunch of the guys from Pixar or you bump into a bunch of producers of producing something else so at the dinner table is always this mad creative uh, group of people and then I'll get up in the morning with my stack of scores and usually for a recording session I won't get to see them before the session um, or else I get them late the night before and I, I just don't anymore because it, it's more important for me to be uh, compass mantis than to, I can't been tired after trying to learn the music. So I will throw them in the bike, head off down the road to the scoring stage, which is in the middle of a vineyard and the orchestra will pass by and honk at me in their cars as I'm cycling along. You know, this is, this we did this for nearly 10 years and a massive, massive scoring stage um just the best fun ever i had so so much fun recording there for 10 years yeah. but um anyway i don't know what deep end i've gone into now so what was the question <laughs> Wait, did you ever think that you'd be working with video games at all uh you know depends on when you ask i mean when i was in college in first year i went to trinity to do the music course there and in first year i got my first video game music credit totally by accident because one of the fourth years was working on Metal Gear Solid and nobody knew now that's a classic game it's a really really famous game nobody knew at the time that I was gonna do anything and my next game credit was World of Warcraft as the orchestrator first time and again at that time nobody knew that was going to blow up into I mean was the four or five years ago they had the 10th anniversary and they'd had over a hundred million individual players um play the game um so so it was you know i suppose i was 19 when i when i did the first one so i knew that that was out there um as a career or not even as a career as part of as part of the career i mean for me it was all about the orchestra everything's all about the orchestra so if that's film music if it's concert music if it's albums if it's video game music um i was i was gonna pursue pursue it all really 
Um, so, I'm kind of going to jump right in. Uh, so, you're from, we know you're from Galway because we've been told you work from the same school as our drama teacher, Miss Rycraft. Um, yeah. Um, Claude, yeah, we're in the same class, actually. Makes bit of yeah. Kind of. Yeah, she, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. There is some video somewhere of myself and Cloda and me of her first cousin doing a dance routine to Money, Money, Money by ABBA in my house. <laughs> you could tell her I said that. I think my mother probably has it somewhere. But yeah, so you grew up in a quite a small village in Galway. How, like, how did you go from kind of small village from from there to like being the first woman to conduct at the Oscars and the National Concert Hall. That's quite a trajectory. How did you? Uh, well, you know what? Um, it's funny. I think, you know, I've, I've kind of always been the outsider and I sort of became comfortable with being the outsider because even, even at school with Cloda, I was coming from the teeny tiny village. So I was the outsider coming from the village into the big town, Ballinasloe. Um, and then coming from Ballinasloe up to Dublin on the train to the College of Music every Saturday morning at 6 a.m. Outsider again, you know, then going to L.A. from Ireland, outsider, outsider, outsider. So I, I became sort of comfortable with just having to sort of not just not really ple please myself yeah at, at the beginning in in my village there just weren't enough people to tell me it was impossible <laughs> or you can't do it because like what and and the other thing was um in a village in a rural village uh there was a composer in my village he's a, a famous composer of, of trad music of trad tunes Paddy Fahi uh, he died at 102 years of age about two years ago and um, the fact that Paddy, see, this is it. If you can see it, you can be it. The fact that Paddy was a composer, I suppose I didn't pay any attention to it. I was like, well, you can be a farmer, you can be a nurse, you can be a teacher, you can be a composer, because these are the people that I knew, you know? Um, but the conducting thing, I mean, the first time I heard an orchestra on TV, I went, okay, that's it. I'm gonna do that thing that they, those people are doing. I don't know what it is, looks pretty cool that's me sorted I was about seven and um you know it was going to be years later before I even heard an orchestra live and the first time I heard an orchestra live I was playing in it you know that's that's how how I grew up but my imagination was very very <laughs> fertile let's put it that way and my parents were like okay she's a bit mad but we'll just be you know benignly supportive um, but I, I did always get the, well, uh, music, very precarious career. My, my choices were music or medicine. So that was, and that's quite common, actually. That's quite common. Uh, in, in my class in college, they did a little informal survey and there were only two other choices of career in the class. One was medicine, the other was mathematics. Um, it, yeah, it may be a particular type that's drawn to the trinity course i don't know but um uh so i thwarted everybody's best hopes for me by dropping all my science subjects after the junior cert even though i loved science you know because it's like nobody's going to pressure me if i don't have any science subjects they can't pressure me into doing medicine so um uh, and and my my poor dad was like but how are you going to make a living how are you going you know because especially you know, the things that I wanted to do were just so outlandish and so, so scary for when I think of it as a parent now, I'm thinking, oh my God, imagine being landed with this mad alien from outer space in your family who wants to do these crazy things that you don't know anyone who does this for a living or even do people get paid for that, you know? So it was, it was a bit mad, but it was always... Um, I always felt, well, we'll see your man there. If he can do it, why wouldn't I do it? You know, that was kind of always my attitude, um, but also a complete fascination and curiosity. Complete fascination is how are they doing this? This is so beautiful and so exciting. And the way it made me feel, the goosebumps and the, that, that very, very um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? A very, uh, it was a very physical experience as well, hearing music that really moves me. And I wanted to know how that worked and how is this happening? And why does this happen? And how can I be a part of it? So in my small town, I took part, and Claude can definitely back me up on this. I took part in absolutely everything music shaped that was going, whether it was uh, the, the folk group playing, I didn't even like folk music, you know, the folk group playing, playing in that, then going and being assistant music director for Godspell and the music, town musical. And then, you know, my first job at 14 in music was playing in flute and piccolo and orchestra pits for, you know, amateur musicals around the west of Ireland and, and the Midlands. And so I, I was, um, you know, learned, I could sight read really well because I, I, I was dumped into orchestra pits all the time. My piano teacher was like another parent. She'd pick me up from school, give me a sandwich, give me a piano lesson, and then take me to play a show with her because I played flute and piano. Um, so it, it was very kind of unconventional, but because I was so excited by music, I mean, I even did things like, um, I moonlighted under the name of another school to take part in a workshop that was given by the, um, uh, the is moonlighted even a word? I don't know if that's even a word, but moonlighting, sneaking under the auspices of something else. Um, a, a, a workshop was given by the Irish Chamber Choir because my school wasn't, wasn't part of that, but there was a school in Athlone that was, and the music teacher invited me to come and be from their school. <laughs> So I was like, I was like, yes, I'll take it. What? Right for the Irish Chamber Choir? Are you kidding? What? And there's me, you know, staying up really late at night, going in like this to school to try and get this piece written, you know? So it all came from how the music made me feel, how it stimulated my imagination, and I suppose logic as well. I'm a fan of logic, which is the stick that your man over there is holding up the, this thing, it couldn't be that heavy, could it? You know? So that being said, well then I can, why not do it? You know, there's no, there's no physical reason why I wouldn't. So, you know, fan of logic, you know? I look at the other thing that I did and I'll, I'll give this to you guys is, um, uh when I when my brother and I were kids on a rainy Saturday, you know, in, in East Galway before the internet, um, we were bored, we just go, okay, all right, what do we do? Let's make something up. Um, we'll make something up. Well, okay, okay, imagine if we and this is the way the conversation would start. Let's make something up and imagine if we did this or did whatever. And that's something that I keep in my life and in my career is I take away the big scary words like composer, conductor, songwriter, lyricist, filmmaker, all these words, get rid of them. I just say, hey, let's make something up. That could be a piece of orchestral music, could be a song. It could be the other day to convince Don Davis, who's the... Um, uh, composer of the Matrix scores, I convinced Don to give me his score at really short notice to play with the symphony orchestra for our, our concert. Um, I'll tell you what I did. Um, I love poems and I love limericks and things. He decided when we met that as an Irish person, I must know lots of limericks and I don't. Um, so he decided that I, that was a disgrace and that he would only answer my emails if I wrote to him in the form of a limerick. So, so I have about a month of emails between myself and Don Davis. And when I was your, your age at school, I remember watching The Matrix and sitting there going, oh my God, the score is really different. Who wrote it? And sitting there waiting to watch the credits and seeing Don Davis and going, chick, remember that name? I didn't know, I'd know him really well years later. So I wrote Don, this will tell you how quickly we put the concert together. I said, okay, I have to convince Don to go into his personal library, send us all the scores and parts, 
Um, normally you have to go through film companies and licensing and big fees and blah, 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 blah. We didn't have time for any of that stuff. So I wrote him a limerick and it was the day that we knew Joe Biden was gonna win the election. So I'll tell you how the limerick went. It went, um, so I'm writing to Don Davis about another Don. It went, on a day when the fate of one Don, Philadelphia sealed with a throng, only one Don could save us, and that sure Don was Davis. He could calm all our nerves with a song. <laughs> so it was like, he was like, Don, there's your score. <laughs> pass, you pass. So anything, making up stuff. And also like the, the song that we just released, I wouldn't call myself a lyricist, but I decided to make up the words to go with the song. So if I put lyricist in front of it, I go, oh, I can't do this, I'm not a lyricist. But if I go, can you make up some words to go with the song that you made up? Yes, I can do that. You know, they mightn't be great, but they might be good, but they might not be. But one thing's for sure, you don't get good unless you do do it a lot. So you have to be bad first. <laughs> You have to be okay with being bad. Uh, you have to be okay with your, your, where you are on your journey, which is particularly difficult for conductors because as much as you practice on your own, you can't really practice until you're in front of 80, 90 other people, all of whom are staring at you going, oh my God, in the beginning of your career. So you, you have to be, you can't, be a good conductor out the out of the gate. It's just it's not that's not the nature of the of the job at all. It's something you get better and better and better at with more and more experience. But you can't practice by yourself. You have to practice on people. <laughs> that's horrifying. But um, yeah, so so um, I can't even. Uh, the, the, what's what's really important is that as creatives. We take away pressure and titles and baggage and we just free ourselves up to make stuff up. If it's a piece of art, if it's a, a poem, if it's an essay, a story, uh, anything. And that goes, that just, that some of the most brilliant people I've met in every walk of life, be, they, be it medicine, you know, business, anything, they're creative and they know how to tap into that creativity and take the pressure off. So that's an important one. Wow. So you're saying that like you can only really get better by practicing or practice makes perfect, if you will. So I was like No, no. Practice makes progress. That's that's the one. Practice it all that matters is that you're getting better. Perfect is not possible. That's that's an illusion. So yeah, practice makes progress. As then like when because you kind of started conducting, was it, you were 19 and you had your first orchestra? Was it yeah. kind of daunting, I suppose, as quite a young woman in front of a group of musicians? And yeah. Conducting, I'll tell you, it's funny because a lot of them were in, in the youth orchestra and a lot of them uh, were all the same age and everything, which is really hard to conduct. I mean, it's really, it's really hard being a young professional conductor when everyone in the orchestra is older than you. That's hard. But it's also really, really hard conducting your peers. And what's really funny is um, when we were recording the score for the film we just did, at least half of the orchestra in the studio were in that orchestra when I was 19. And they were like, oh, remember all the things we did? It was so much fun. And I was like, it was so much work. Are you kidding me? You came in and had the fun. I was doing all the work. And they're like, yeah, I remember this. And I remember you being late for rehearsal all the time. <laughs> but um, it, was, it was so fun to see, see the gang that we're, we were there, you know, and we made so many mistakes. And that's how we learned, you know. I had to do every job in an orchestra. I had to be the librarian. I had to be the copyist. I had to be the arranger. Um, I had to be, uh, I had to put out the chairs. I had to be the orchestra manager. I had to be the contractor. I had to be the piano mover. I had to be the marketing person. And I had Gillian Saunders, one of my classmates doing it with me. But we were, we the amount of work we put in. And now when I see 
when I work with an, a, a, an executive team and an orchestra and I see how many people are on the team doing what we did as kids, um, two of us, you know, it, it's, it's intense. It's in, now, in fairness, they're doing a different concert every week. So you need a, you need a, a well-oiled machine to do that. But um, yeah, it was really, really strange conducting my friends and telling them what to do. But it was absolutely the best thing I ever did. Absolutely, because nobody's going to give you an orchestra. Nobody's going to give you an ensemble to conduct. Nobody's going to jump out of your wardrobe and say, hey, I've seen you practice. You're great. You know, <laughs> nobody's going to do that. So you have to, you have to, you have to pull up your, your bootstraps and, and make something happen. That's just the way we did it. And, and that's how I learned. And it gave me, I mean, I was doing my music degree, but what really gave me the, the skills to enter the industry and survive the industry was working on that orchestra for five years. You know, it's amazing. And do you think like, cause you kind of obviously playing with one orchestra you kind of get used to the different um, musicians going from like one orchestra to the next. Do you have to kind of learn different ways to kind of communicate with the different orchestra when you're up on the podium? It's a great question. Well done. Really, really good. Um, well, first of all, my first thing is, is there a language barrier? So I, I've performed in many, many countries, including China. And I, you know, my, my, my Mandarin is horrendous, but I can I can throw out some bar numbers at people, you know. Um, German, I have leave insert German, so that's better. I have a junior set French, that's okay. I have some Italian. Greek, mm, no. Um, and, and it's funny actually mentioning mentioning Greek. There's, there's an orchestra I love in Athens. And the way they rehearse is so different and the way they communicate with each other. So I absolutely love it. It's so vibrant and fiery and great. But the first time I experienced it, I was like, oh my God, there's going to be a fight. <laughs> What's going on here? And there was, I'll never forget, there's a cellist from Wales. And there's this like shouting going across the room and, and the trombone player standing up holding his instrument and the second violinist who's the shop steward, the union representative is holding his bow up. And I'm like, what's going on? And she said, oh, the brass don't have bar numbers. <laughs> they have the rehearsal letters, they don't have bar numbers. I was like, and this is, <laughs> this is the reaction. It's like this you'd never see in the United States or in Northwestern Europe or whatever. But there are lots of different things. So I'll give you some of the, the really technical things that I have to, to take note of first. And one is, what does the orchestra tune to? Now this is this is really really advanced the stuff I'm telling you that even you know graduate students wouldn't know about in in university and coming out of conservatories and coming out of with masters in conducting don't necessarily know this, but the recording standard is 440 hertz and A. So when we when we tune to the oboe an A uh, at 440 hertz. Now we're talking about cents. There's a hundred cents in a semitone, so two cents. There's a hundred in the semitone, two cents higher is still an A, of course, but the orchestra in Dublin, the orchestras in Dublin would perform at 442 hertz. In Germany, it can go as high as 444. And, um, uh, but, and in the United States, it's mostly, but it differs from place to place, it's mostly 440, which is recording standard. Um, where this becomes complicated is when we're doing uh, film scores and, and game scores where we're mixing the orchestra with maybe sampled instruments, electronic instruments, um, samplers, anything that's electronic that's being recorded at 440. You'll get a bit of beating and I'll, I'm, I'm able to hear the difference between 440 and 442, which is an absolute scourge, but it's good for work. Um, so, so that's first thing is what does everyone tune to? The second thing I'll get really practical about breaks. Orchestra members are, are intense about when they take the break and how long it's for. And you will see the clock on the stage and you will finish exactly on the zeros. 
you will not finish after. Uh, it's really, really, it's a respect thing as well because uh, it's there to protect the musicians so that conductors and producers don't take advantage and they're playing and playing and playing and it's, it's just a dirge. So I'll, different orchestras have different traditions around how long the break, when they take the break. That sounds boring, whatever. Then when we're playing, um, certain things that I'll be taking note of right away is, is this an orchestra that's used to playing on the stick? Like when I do, like this is on the stick, bah, right there with me. Or is it, bah, they play when I've hit the beat and I'm on the way up, they'll play at the top here. So they play after or they, do they play on? And some things, uh, it's interesting, they'll, they'll waver on. And one of the reasons for these things is playing tradition. What their music director who's with them all the time does, you know, is, are they someone that they need to, if they need to interpret what that conductor is doing together after the beat or, or not. The other is this, it's, the acoustic in the hall and delay. So we have psychoacoustics to deal with how sound travels and how long it takes the sound from the back of the orchestra to get to me. And you can have, depending on the acoustic environment, that delay can be quite a lot. When you're talking about fast music where, you know, we need to be, um, we need to be hemi demi flemmy, slemmy, quaver accurate, you know. I do prefer the American method of 32nd, 64th note, all of that, because I feel I, I can't get the hemi flammy slammies right in my head. Um, but yeah, so, so oftentimes playing after the beat has to do with the orchestra figuring out their place inside of uh, an acoustic that has a lot of delay in it so that they, they can figure out where they each need to play to be together as a whole. It's, it's quite complicated really but a lot of it's we feel it out as well we feel our way around as well so I'll give you an, uh, uh, something we did the other day we were all socially distanced which was really really hard it's hard to hear each other it's hard to have good ensemble all of that so what we did was I said to everybody look the, the delay in here is going to be massive and also we have a lot of plexiglass with all these things so we had um, earpiece, we had in-ears, we call them IEMs, in-ear monitors. And we had microphones on the percussion and the piano with microphones on everybody, but I could ask the, um, the engineer who's there, can you please send me just percussion, piano. So the piano was all the way to my right and the percussion was all the way to my left really, really far away. But because I was getting both of them in my ear, I could decide, how to conduct to 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 keep us all together um, that was really important otherwise the delay coming from both sides i wouldn't be reacting in a way that would make sense so a boring answer but there you go very technical <laughs> good question i have to ask about uh, at the oscars what um like did you have i forgot what you called the little ear things did you have that in such a big space or well, we, we have to in that environment because it is live. Okay, what you saw at the Oscars was live. What you heard was us playing in that moment. But because it is such a big audience and because the live situation is unpredictable, sometimes you have all your contingencies, you've everything done, everyone's super pro and it's all perfectly done. And the gods of the theater go, uh, not today folks do not you know because we say so and you're like why is the cable that's always worked why is that not working why is this happening this happening this happening so you always have to have contingency when something is going out to that many people and it matters that much so what we did was we recorded everything at capital records in advance we synchronized to uh especially create a click track that we had in our ears um, I'm also getting messages from the, the producers in my ears, which is very distracting. And um, what we do is when we're playing, and this is, this is you know what, I, I can't go into it so much because I'll be, I'll be giving away too much secrets and I am being recorded, but we have to make sure that we have contingencies just in case everything breaks down for no apparent reason in the moment. 
So we're, we're synchronized such that we can reproduce a performance exactly the same way. Um, it's more fun when it's unpredictable. It's more fun like what we did with symphony orchestra the other day where we don't have to synchronize to anything and we're just being together and, and all of that. But sometimes the, the job necessitates being uh, very, very conscientious and having contingencies because boy, oh boy, you don't want anything to go wrong out to have a billion people or whatever it was. Um, <laughs> you cringe. <laughs> For any aspiring young conductors in small towns in Ireland, what would you, uh, what advice would you give them? Oh, I love this question. Um, first of all, skill up big time. Get your skills, your, your musicianship skills, your aural skills, your keyboard skills. You know, there is nothing, nobody can tell you you can't do something if you clearly have all the skills and they're right there for everybody to see. Okay. The other thing that's so great in Ireland right now is the National Concert Hall is running a female conductors program and I'm, I'm going to be teaching on it this year. Um, and I'm going to teach some synchronization things that aren't taught in, in, um, in conducting programs on master's programs and things like that, because those of us that are doing them aren't really teaching, you know. Um, but for me, Ireland is all bets are off when it comes to Ireland. And when it comes to young Irish women who want to be conductors, all bets are definitely off. So I would say skills, skills, skills. Also, for those of you that want to be composers, um, again, skills and technique, harmony, counterpoint. Sounds boring. It's really, really important. Technology. So I'll give you, I'll throw out there if you want to check them out, some of the programs that we use. You probably know some of them already. Um, one of my favorite things is Sibelius, the notation program. It is absolutely marvelous. And you never have to, I have horrible, horrible handwriting. It's terrible. Sibelius, amazing. Um, get to know that really, really well. The other one is, um, uh, so that's a notation program. Uh, we use sequencers. So those are, are, are things that we can do mock-ups of orchestral pieces. We can bring electronics into our orchestral mixes. Um, one of those is called Logic. There's one called, um, uh, 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 why am I, is my brain just completely gone? Um, Logic is the one that we use. Uh, uh, Cubase is the other one that's used a lot. Um, also Pro Tools for recording. These, so the three programs that I use all the time are uh, Sibelius for notation, um, Logic for sequencing, and Pro Tools for audio. Uh, Logic deals with audio too, but it's not as, not as well as, as Pro Tools. And these are all industry standard. Um, so again, skill up, skill, skill, skills, orchestration. Hold on, let me show you some of my favorite books. The Study of Orchestration by Samuel Adler. What's really cool about this one is it comes with uh, DVDs that show you all the instrumental techniques. As in this is what flautando looks like, it sounds like this is what um, spiccato looks like and sounds like this is what flutter tonguing is like on trumpets, blah, blah, blah. Um, let me see, that, that's a really, really good one. Um, but these are all university standard things, but they're, they're good for, you know, leave inserts if you wanna, if you wanna take things a bit further and so on. Okay, so to finish off, we're just gonna do a few more like quick questions, if that's okay. Sure. All right, so first off, um, what's your favorite instrument playing or listening to? Um, whoa, I, I, you know, it's more like what instrument do I not like, but I am very partial to the viola and the bassoon. And maybe it's that, that middle range, like they cross over the range of the human voice, you know, the spoken voice. I love the bassoon. And I don't play bassoon, and I love viola. I love a really good viola player with a really rich sound. It's great. All right, so you've played in a lot, like you've conducted in a lot of venues. What's your favorite one, do you think? Um, different ones for different reasons. I mean, the National Concert Hall stage is in my heart. That's always important to me. Um, the Sydney Opera House was amazing because it was, you, you walk out in the break and you're, 
you're in concert mode and you're thinking about notes and you turn around and ah, it's like that scene from um, Finding Nemo when they come out of the intercontinental drift and look at Sydney Harbour and see the opera house and it's like this, all you hear is this choir going, ah, that was like happening in my brain every time I looked at the building. Um, so that was really cool. Amazing dressing room actually in that place. Um, what else? Madison Square Garden Theatre was kind of kind of cool because that's New York history. Um, the Greek Theatre was kind of fun because it's such a rock and roll venue. Uh, Get Him to the Greek, that movie has the Greek Theatre in it. Um, what am I forgetting? I loved the, um, the Colosseum in, um, uh, um, in London is one that I like, the English National Opera's home. Um, then, uh, Oh, the, the um, I was supposed to do, this didn't happen because of COVID, but I was supposed to do a concert in the, the Herodian, which is uh, at the base of the Acropolis in, um, in Athens. Uh, let me see, I did the bird's nest in, in, um, in, in China, in Beijing, which is really a stadium, it, uh, is really hard to perform in because the sound comes slapping back at you from every direction. So that's kind of crazy. Um, this, you know, they're, they're all different uh, for different reasons. Um, the Kennedy Center was a cool one in Washington, DC. Uh, I'm, for, I'm forgetting everything. You're, you're, you know, the brain is, is just grinding to a halt here. But um, yeah, they're, 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 um, they're all different. They're all beautiful. They're all, it's all good all good yeah i know you don't like using the like the terms and everything but would you say do you prefer conducting or composing music uh they both go together for me um and it's weird they're different parts of the brain as well i will learn a piece i've written as if it was somebody else's piece because i need to have the, all the nuts and bolts and technical things in place um, so it's a different headspace. Which one do I prefer? Um, there's the, the rewards are different for each. I mean, what's incredible about composing is the feeling you get at the end of the day when there's something that exists that didn't exist when you woke up that morning. That's pretty great. Um, and I guess I'm in a really, really good mood when I've created something like that. It's the best mood I'm ever in. Um, conducting, uh, working with other musicians, the immediacy of it, the, you know, creating something that's delightful for an audience, that has totally different, uh, totally different rewards. Um, and also getting into other people's music because you're conducting it. And I mean, the concert we did the other day, um, uh, it, with the exception of uh, Ennio Morricone and um, uh, Alfred Newman, all of the other composers are living composers. They're, most of them are friends of mine and that's extra special because I'm learning their work and I'm, it's a weird kind of way of getting to know a different facet of your friend, you know? One of my, one of my best friends, by the way, girls, I, something about going to a girls' school, there's something about that camaraderie of the girls because uh, my Turkish sister from another mister, Pinar Toprak, uh, two of her pieces on the concert of the symphony orchestra. One is her music from Fortnite. The other is her music from Captain Marvel. So she scored, the, it's the highest budget that any woman has ever scored, over a hundred million dollar budget of a film, Captain Marvel. And um, the feeling of having her music with my national orchestra, one of my best friends, and playing her music, people that I love, that is a massive reward. And that's different again, you know, I mean, you guys, I can tell you've, you're so supportive of each other. It's lovely. That's a, that's a great feeling. Okay, so for our last question, we're kind of moving away from music, but when you conducted for the Oscars, did you guys get a goodie bag at the end? Ah, <laughs> no, we didn't. We didn't. There was. There's something about the goodie bags that happened where the the um, 
the goodie bags got a lot smaller because they, they, they had tax implications because they were so valuable. People were having to pay taxes on the goodie bags. <laughs> now that, that burst your romantic bubble. No, what I did get, um, the people that worked on the show. So at the Oscars, there's, there's the people that are part of the show and there's the people that are attending the show. So for me, it was a great badge of honor to get the, we got a black hoodie with a gold, um, Oscar on it and 92 the 92nd Academy Awards with the, the number on the sleeve and you know that was the the orchestra and the production team we all got got those we got baseball caps and stuff so those are those are really um I I just I wear those with pride if I'm having a sort of a meh day and trying to work and I'm trying to create something put on that hoodie and I'm like you know, I feel like I'm back with the orchestra. It brings, it, it just makes me happy. Um, so that means more to me than a bunch of gift voucher, vouchers for this and that and massages and private jets and stuff. <laughs> yeah. I also have one more question. Um, so I'm in sixth year, I'm studying the like course for B or something. Course like B, yeah. Mozart and Brilliant. I was just wondering what, um, what like set works did you have to study? Oh my God, uh, for the leaving cert. Beethoven 8. Beethoven 8. What else? Um, there was a piece by, oh my gosh, what's that Irish composer's name? I think I actually played the piece as part of my auditions uh john buckley john buckley was a piece by him there was um oh junior search we had ba -ba 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 -bong. if i'm ever going to play timpani in any piece el salo mexico by aaron copeland because everybody's waiting for that bong and the power you have until that happens you just have everyone just sit there um what else did what Nathan, do you uh, do you know what was on that year with the um, the the Beethoven? I have I can't remember. That, was that? Can't remember what else was on it. Was that like pre um, nine? Yeah, yeah. We, we we had the the older nastier nastier leaving cert. Um, oh. I hear it's nicer now. Yeah. <laughs> what is it? We've got Berlioz Symphony Fantastique. Yeah. Oh, lovely. Piano uh, concerto. Which piano concerto? Mozart number 23. Yeah. K. Okay. The K's. Um, Something Fantastique is a great one for program music. And, and here's something to, to throw in your throw in your leaving search essays on program music is uh, the modern day equivalent of program music is video game music and film music, where we uh, have to paint pictures with sound and we have to elicit emotion, specific specific emotions from the listeners. Um, but, but the precursor to modern day, especially video game music, is uh, program music, which you know really Beethoven gets the credit for that in his in his Sixth Symphony, the Pastoral. But if you listen to lots of earlier stuff, you can hear programmatic things. And um, one of the great things is. Um, things like the Diablo Musicae, the, the augmented fourth that was banned from church music for hundreds of years. We use that all the time in program music to paint specific pictures. Um, and for horror scores in particular, they're very programmatic. I, I'll tell you composer, Mr. Barrett will know this composer. I found myself on a panel with just the year before he, he passed away and he's, totally copied by all film composers when they're writing horror scores. And that's Shishtov Penderecki, wrote an amazing piece called Threnody for the victims of Hiroshima. And uh, I found myself on a panel next to him and all I could think was, I totally fangirled all over the poor man. It was just really sad. I could barely speak to the press when they were asking me. I was just staring at him the entire time because he was my total, total hero, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, um, Berlioz Symphony Fantastica performed a, a few times, not recently, but yeah, that's a good one. I love the Mozart piano concertos, they're so beautiful, yeah, so, so beautiful.
Like even though it's a bit rough studying them, like they're still such nice pieces to learn about. Yeah, yeah, no, they're they're really, really special. And um, you know, I I've been quoted as saying if Mozart were alive, he'd write video game music. Um, and the press always grabs something and run with it. But because it's fun, he loved a puzzle. And part of putting together a game score when you have something that, that needs to react to a character's actions is it's a, it's a technical puzzle. And Mozart was renowned for loving all kinds of puzzles, yeah. uh, musical puzzles in, in particular. Um, but, uh, and also he wrote opera buffa. I mean, if he wrote opera buffa, he'd definitely be into video game music. I can, I can tell. <laughs> oh, I'd say he was cracked at the crap. Have you seen Amadeus, the film? No, I actually showed, um, we, with first years, we actually, Claudia's in my first year class. And we'll tell you what we did there recently. Well, we were just kind of watching like the, like clips from it and like the beginning of it when we were looking at yeah the wild parties yeah well you know what another one actually um mr barrett i don't know what the age is on this one there's a really good film by filmmaker gerard corbiu uh called le roi danse the king dances and it's the relationship between luli and louis Catars, and some shows them creating some of the first opera and the first ballet it's very, very visually opulent, but I would definitely check the um, the rating. <laughs> um, but it's it is music history. It's great if you ever go to the Opera House in Garnier in Paris, that would have been their their stamping ground, their haunt. The big, huge statue of Lully inside the door. Oh, and here's here's the the last story I'll leave you with. Lully, the first conducting fatality that we know of. Um, Yes. Uh, so uh, somebody was telling me about a famous singer. Isn't it amazing that they, they feel their pulse and get in tune with their pulse before they start singing? And isn't this revolutionary? I was like, no, that's what we did before we had metronomes. It's called a tactus, your pulse of tactus. So if you're fit and healthy, your resting pulse is in around 60 BPM. And a lot of music is written at 60, at 120, especially film music, actually. Um, but uh, so Luli, not only was our, our pulse called the tactus, but in the early days of conducting, it was a big, huge stick that the, the orchestra, the person in front of the orchestra would hold. And that was also called the tactus. And it was huge. You can see it in the film, The King Dances. And he would hold it up and stop it. It also became a percussion instrument. It, but you rise it up and, and it's funny because when you when you watch the way they do it it's it's like an upbeat you can see the upbeat you can see the downbeat and Lily stabbed himself in the foot with it and uh, got gangrene yeah yeah and died there you go happy thoughts to end our chat <laughs> the first conducting fatality that we know of um but it's actually a little more romantic than that they could have they they could have saved him uh, he was also a dancer. This is the other thing. Some people like Lully, he was a polymath. I mean, so was Wagner. So was a lot of those composers. Um, but uh, they gave him the, the choice. They would remove his leg um, and he'd live, but he wouldn't, give, he wouldn't be able to dance again. And he chose, he chose to, to leave the building instead, you know, because he couldn't live without dancing. Anyway, and other such happy tales. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Emer. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Amazing chatting to you. Thank you, girls. Tell Cloda I was asking for her, and Mr. Barrett is amazing. Let's give him a rule of us. Rule of us, Mr. Barrett. Wasn't that so good? Oh my god, guys, thank you so much for listening this month. Hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to come back next month for Alex in the Pod. Thank you.